0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 31 years we have invited voices of conscience to explore the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Learn more about the forum online at WestminsterForum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm a senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Rick Steves is a travel expert whose publications and programs have encouraged millions to expand their worldview through travel. A graduate of the University of Washington, he is the founder of Europe Through the Back Door, a Washington-based company that has produced 50 books on travel, the popular PBS series, Rick Steves Europe, and the weekly public radio show, Travel with Rick Steves. He and his staff work from the fundamental principle that we can't understand our world without experiencing it, and that travel provides lessons which equip us to deal more effectively with the challenges facing our nation and world. In his presentation today, Travel as a Political Act, he will share some of the lessons he's learned from his decades of global travel. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Rick Steves.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, I like to walk around when I talk, so I'll take this. Um, It is an honor to be here, and uh, it's a thrill for me as a travel teacher to be able to share the lessons I've learned from spending a third of my adult life living out of a 9 by 22 by 14 inch carry-on-the-airplane-sized suitcase. (laughs) I look back now, after 30 years of traveling, and I have spent four months a year ever since I graduated from high school, overseas, and uh, it's been time and money very, very well spent, and uh, I've had so much fun sharing the lessons from my experience. And uh, I never wanted to travel. My parents dragged me to Europe when I was a kid, because my dad imported pianos from Germany, so I had to see the piano factories, and then we had relatives up in Norway. And uh, I remember thinking it was a stupid idea. I was a 14-year-old with a bad attitude over there. <laughs> and, uh, After a couple of days, it occurred to me, you know, this is not all that bad. There was different candy, Uh, there was, uh, um, I could gamble in the hotel lobbies, I remember. There were statuesque women with hairy armpits. Um, (laughs) it, It was a wonderland for this little kid, and a couple years later, I remember I was in the train station in Copenhagen, surrounded by other kids just a couple years older than me with rucksacks and Eurail rail passes and uh, exciting destinations clicking up on the departure board. Europe was their playground and there wasn't a, a mom or a dad in sight, and I thought, you know, I could do this without my mom and dad. I vowed to go to Europe every year since then, and I have. At first I was a piano teacher traveling purely for kicks, and then I realized I was learning from my mistakes. Other people were making the same mistakes. I could share the lessons I learned from my mistakes. People could learn from me rather than their own problems and have a smoother, better, less expensive trip and so on. Now I struggled with this when I was an idealistic college kid thinking, is this really what I want to do? Because my image of travel, if you think way back to the 50s and 60s, was, uh, you know, Americans on vacation on a big luxury cruise ship in the Caribbean. The highlight of their trip was throwing nickels off the deck and and photographing what they called the little dark kids jumping for their coins. I don't know if you remember that, but that was kind of why a lot of people traveled, was just to feel really rich and, and better and luckier than other people. And I thought, God, I don't really want to promote that, and I also thought that notion of travel actually persists to this day. I mean, for a lot of Americans, travel is still You know, see if you can eat five meals a day and still snorkel when you get into port. (laughs) Now, when I say that at a cruise convention, people fidget nervously in their seats, thinking, where's he going with this? But I'm not saying that in a judgmental way, I'm just saying that's hedonism, it's not travel, you know, it's hedonism. And I've got no problem with hedonism. I'm a Lutheran. but. I wanted to dedicate my hard work in teaching and in promoting a kind of travel that brings people together, you see. That's to me what travel is, it's bringing people together, it's a beautiful opportunity. And sadly a lot of people travel, and they come home, and they've actually exacerbated the distance between them and the rest of the world, and that's really a lost opportunity. So with my work at Europe Through the Back Door, that's what I try to do, and I look back after 30 years of teaching, I didn't have a grand plan, but it's been kind of like Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Remember that thing, first you cover your basic needs, and then you get fancier and more creative and altruistic and meaningful and fulfilled and all that. If I look back at 30 years of teaching, my first decade was all about cheap tricks, Europe through the back door, how to catch the train, how to pack light, all that. And then the next decade, the 90s, was about Europe 101, appreciating history and art and culture and cuisine for travelers is a little higher-minded travel. And in the last decade, as a matter of fact, since about 912, my passion has been for trying to inspire and help t- American travelers travel in a way that broadens their perspective, to better understand the other 96% of humanity. If I, and that's what travel as a political act is all about, really. Um, so that's been a 30-year sort of subconscious evolution in my teaching, and I'm very excited to be traveling now in a way that, that really challenges us all to get out of our comfort zone and better understand where we're at in this planet. When I look at our situation today in our beautiful society, I see a lot of fear being pushed on us, a lot of fear. We've never had so many people pushing so much fear on us, and anytime people are trying to make me afraid, red flags go up. What's your agenda? It occurs to me fear is for people who don't get out very much. <laughs> and I've found, I've found that the flip side of fear is understanding and you gain understanding by traveling thoughtfully. I've also found that there's a real interest in dumbing us down. You know, just go shopping. <laughs> no way. I want to be smarted up. We are, we are encountering unprecedented, complex challenges to our beautiful country and our culture, and we need to encourage each other to be smart enough and not afraid. So that's the topic of, of what I'd like to share with you. You know, travel, just basically, as a travel writer, you gotta bring home the fun, the magic, the beauty of our world. And when when I travel, I get myself closer to nature. I mean I can be walking on a ridge, tight roping on a ridge, high in the Swiss Alps. On one side I got lakes stretching all the way to Germany. On the other side I got cut glass peaks, the most incredible alpine panorama anywhere, the Eiger Monk and Jungfrau. Ahead of me I hear the long legato tones of an horn announcing that the helicopter stocked mountain hut is open. It's just around the corner and the coffee schnapps is on. Whoa, that is a beautiful moment, and I, for the rest of my life, am more excited about nature. Travel also helps me get excited about culture, cultural differences. I'm kind of a bumpkin, I go over there and I'm wide open, tell me what turns you on, you know? For me, cheese is a very good example. I grew up thinking cheese is no big deal. It's orange in the shape of the bread, here you go, cheese sandwich. (laughs) And then you go to France and it's like, you know... There, there's a different cheese for every day of the year. You step into these little cheese shops, and it's a festival of mold. I mean, <laughs> people are evangelical about stinky cheese. I, I, if you see my show, I, I love to pal around with a restaurateur in Paris. I'm her little bumpkin, you know. She takes me to these nice, nice uh, markets in the morning, picks up a moldy wad of cheese, oh, takes a big whiff and says, oh Rick, smell this cheese. It smells like ze feet of angels. All right, you think cheese smells like the feet of angels. I don't need to go home and and become crazy about stinky cheese, but at least I realize there are people on this planet that are excited about things that I don't realize until then you could be excited about. It humbles me, it opens me up, it inspires me. A great thing about travel also is you meet people. If I'm making a TV show or a guidebook or putting one of our tours together and I'm not connecting people with people, I'm really nervous. It's going to be a flat experience. If my shows are good on Twin Cities public television, it's because I've got friends in these places we're going. I'm not met by a woman in a dirndl at the airport, sent there by the tourist board to take me to promote all the clichés. I got friends. We can really see how the people live. We can humanize that beautiful country through our travels. Now the encounters you have with people, they don't need to be earth-shaking, they can just be goofy little encounters. Just recently I was in Italy and this little boy was staring at me, It was kind of rude. Finally, his dad said, excuse my son, he stares at Americans. And um, I said, well, what's with that? He said, well, last week we were at McDonald's having our hamburger, and my son asked me, Dad, why do Americans have such soft bread, you know, noticing the fluffy bun? And the dad said, son, it's because Americans have no teeth. (laughs) 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 Now, the dad was not trying to say anything, mean I think he was just entertaining himself as he was out with this little boy. But the poor little kid was confused, and he looked at me wondering if I had teeth, so I showed him my teeth, and I did my little bit there to to dispel some misunderstanding between cultures. Um, (laughs) This happens all the time when you're traveling. People come to you with all sorts of wacky ideas. I mean, you go uh, to—I remember going to communist Bulgaria, and my friend said, okay, now, if everything's private property, how can you go anywhere without trespassing? It's confusing, you know, they've got really misconceptions about our country, we've got misconceptions about theirs. One of my favorite places to travel is Ireland. Because in Ireland, I have this sensation that I'm understanding a foreign language. <laughs> 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 and and uh, Irish have this incredible gift of gab where they just love to converse. It's an art form, and if you want to really enjoy Ireland the best in that regard, go to the far west, where they have n- n- national parks for the survival of the traditional culture. These are called Gaeltachts, where the government has decided to spend money, actually, to keep small farms alive. Not be, I mean, goofy notion here, I know, but um, (laughs) just with the idea that it doesn't have to be good business, it's just nice to let your next generation know from where they came, you see. Kids from the big city go out to the Gaeltechs, and they hear people speaking traditional Irish, they learn the dances, and they see what their culture is all about. As a traveler, if you're looking for Ireland in the extreme, you go to a Gaeltech, and you just get seduced by these people with their wonderful, artful conversation form. Uh, so many times, I've been standing on the far west of Ireland where people stand on a bluff and gaze out at the sea and they say, Ah, the next parish over is Boston. <laughs> Get into a conversation. I remember talking to this one guy, and uh, after a little while, I said, Were you born here? He said, No, it's about five miles down the road. <laughs> Later on, I asked him, Have you lived here all your life? And he said, Not yet. <laughs> I mean, that's enough to help, you know, get you to throw away your itinerary and just settle in. And uh, you're, you're forever changed when you meet people in faraway countries. Now, my beat is Europe, and it's been an exciting time in Europe. There's all sorts of big changes in Europe. Of course, Europe has been uniting for the last 60 years. Uh, the whole idea is twofold, I think, to create a free trade zone to compete with the United States and to interweave the economies of France and Germany so they never go to war again. Now, this has been a stuttering evolution, two steps forward, one step back, and every time you hear the news, it's something embarrassing and bad about the European Union. But nobody would say, that it has uh, been anything but a great success when you consider the beauty of not having another big world war between the powers within Europe. Now they are so integrated, that makes all the other foibles of the European Union small potatoes as far as I'm concerned. Now Europe has had to p- create a free trade zone to compete with the United States. To put things into perspective, we are a free trade zone of 300 million people with a, that produces about 13 trillion dollars a year of stuff. They are a free-trade zone of 400 million people that produces about the same 13 trillion dollars a year. Now, people who are proponents of our system and threatened by Europe's system will say, look at those Europeans, there's more of them and they don't make any more money than us, they earn less than we do. Well, that's true, but if you say the whole sentence, you would also acknowledge that they choose to work 25% fewer hours than us and produce about 25% less per person than us. By any fair measure, they produce the same as we do per hour they just choose not to work themselves into an early grave, you know. (laughs) So don't let anybody tell you Europe is a socialistic basket case. Now Europe is in crisis just like we are, and as a person who, I employ 80 people in Seattle and we take 400 groups around Europe every year and got all sorts of uh, guidebooks and interest in keeping people traveling, people are concerned about the stability of Europe with this economic crisis, what's going on over there? Well they've got the same crisis that we've got, a little bit worse, I think, because they are more geriatric than us and they have more lavish entitlements than us. Our entitlements and their entitlements, I believe, I'm not an economist, but let me just uh, distill it down in in a travel writer's perspective, based on a, a demographic situation where there's a lot of young people working, a few people retiring, and they don't live very long after they do retire. When a society gets wealthy and well-educated, it just has less children, okay, Uh, and that's what Europe is having right now, they're the richest and most educated part of the planet, they also have the smallest population growth, okay, so what you have now is a geriatric continent, that's why there is serious discussion of bringing Turkey into the fold, not because they wanted to have Turkey in the EU, but they needed 70 million young workers, you see, Uh, but now you've got uh, uh, a few people working, a lot of people retiring, living a long time, And it just doesn't add up from an arithmetic point of view. It's tough to be a politician telling your people the truth like that, isn't it, as we're dealing with here too. In Europe and in the United States, we've conned ourselves into thinking we're wealthier than we really are, and uh, we've got a situation where the best and brightest are going into uh, occupations where they just want to rearrange the furniture without really producing anything and and become really, really wealthy, and uh, that's not very sustainable and we're having an adjustment right now. And in Europe they're going to be, you you know, from a travel point of view I think it's plenty stable, but I would not want to be a worker in Europe right now because you're not going to get the promised retirement that that you work your life for. It's just not going to be there, and uh, you won't be able to have that beautiful sort of stability that your parents had. As we travel in Europe, the big news is Eastern Europe opening up. It's amazing, just a few years ago the entire Warsaw Pact country joined the EU overnight, hundred million new capitalists, and the geographic center of Europe shifts from Belgium to the Czech Republic, and when you travel through Eastern Europe today it's a festival of pent-up entrepreneurial spirit. Really exciting to check that out, and when you go there you realize what a contrast when they start to embrace the fundamental laws of supply and demand, have a free economy. Before they had a, uh, a clueless command economy where people would uh, dictate from the top how much to produce, Poland's a good example. When I was first going to Poland, it was so bleak and and demoralizing that people were actually taking their windshield wipers in with them at night. Why? Because somebody forgot to order windshield wipers. There's more demand than supply, thieves get wind of that, and obviously they're going to rip off your windshield wipers and sell them for a fortune on the black market. That's how a black market works. Well now, the laws of supply and demand are kicked in, there's plenty of windshield wipers to meet the demand, and people are leaving them on their cars at night. When you travel through the Eastern Europe, you you understand the challenges and the struggles it takes to transition from that communist economy to the free economy. Now, my love of Europe is based to a certain degree on the wonderful variety of Europe. Uh, It's just great when you go travel a few hours and you're in a whole different language group, a whole different culture, and so on. The concern, you'd think, when Europe is uniting is that it would become one big homogenous zone, of course, you don't have to show your passport to cross a border. You got 300 million people with the same coins in their pocket. It's going that way from an efficiency point of view, but from a cultural diversity point of view, counterintuitively, Europe is becoming more diverse as it unifies. This is very good news. Think about it. If you meet a uh, well, any European has three different degrees of loyalty: region, nation, and Europe. If you meet somebody from Barcelona, say, "Where are you from?" They could say, "I'm Catalonian," "I'm Spanish," or "I'm European." Meet somebody from Munich. Where are you from? Bavarian, German, or European, depending on their own outlook. Now, uh, if you go to any city hall in Europe these days, you'll see three flags. One for the region, one for the nation, and one for Europe. Now, in all of our lifetimes, headlines in Europe have been filled by regions challenging nations. Basques trying to pull away from Spain, Britain people and Corsicans trying to pull away from Paris, Scots and Irish upset with London, and so on. Now, as Europe unites, Paris and London and Madrid realize they don't really have much say anymore, and actually the Basques and the Briton people and the Scots and the Irish are able to thrive. They're able to wave their own flags with vigor, and they don't threaten Brussels. This is really good news, and the little languages of Europe are, are, are more vibrant now than they were a generation ago. When you go to Barcelona after Mass on Sunday, people gather outside of the cathedral and do their, their sacred sardana dance. They can teach their kids uh, the Catalonian language first, and they learn Spanish as a second language and they can wave their own Catalonian flag instead of their football flag, you see. You couldn't have done any of that in Franco's time. For the first time since 1707, Scotland has a parliament in Edinburgh instead of in London. Why? Because London's no longer threatened by this. And now people in Brittany can name their children Celtic names and not lose their French citizenship. So it's a very radical change as we travel through Europe, and we see that Brussels is promoting flag-waving and speaking the languages of the little ethnic regions. All that's very exciting. Now, when you travel, whether you're going to Europe or beyond Europe, and I see Europe as the waiting pool for world exploration, you gain a broader perspective. That's what I think is so exciting, and I'm my own worst example in that. I grew up thinking the United, S- the world is a pyramid with the United States on top and everybody else trying to figure it out. And then I went traveling and I've met smart people who didn't have the American dream. At first I was put off by that. Can I explain to you why you should have the American dream? And then I realized, no, they got the Norwegian dream, or the Bulgarian dream, or the Moroccan dream, or the Sri Lankan dream, and that is a beautiful thing. That is something to celebrate. And when we travel, we find that smart people wouldn't trade passports. They, they respect us, they admire us, but they like to be who they are, and, and, and that's something that's very exciting. When you travel around the world, you recognize the pride on this planet time and time again, you find yourself in situations where people just don't need instructions from us on how to live fulfilling and good lives. I was in, uh, as a tour guide with one of our tour groups, I was in eastern Turkey once, I'll never forget this, and we were with a a woodcarver, and he was famous in in that part of Turkey for carving prayer niches. Every mosque wanted one of his beautifully hand-carved prayer niches. He had never even met an American before, and he had 20 of them around his his woodcarving desk and he was busy working, and we were watching and taking pictures, suddenly he stopped, he held his chisel high into the sky, I'll never forget it, and he declared, a man and his chisel, the greatest factory on earth. (laughs) Oh baby, he was fulfilled with what he did. Later on I asked him if I could buy a piece of his uh, carving to take (coughs) home, and he said, no, for a man my age to know that my work will be taken by you back to the United States of America, and remembered and appreciated, that's payment enough. Take this home with you and always remember me." <laughs> what a beautiful moment! Those are the kind of moments that, that stay with you and become the best souvenirs. long time ago I was in Afghanistan once, and I was just passing through like a backpacker, sitting down in a cafeteria, a man sat next to me, he said, can I join you? I said, you already have, and he said, <laughs> he said, are you an American? I said, yeah, and he said, I'm a professor here in Afghanistan, and I want you to know that a third of the people on this planet eat with spoons and forks like you do, a third of the people eat with chopsticks, and a third of the people eat with fingers like I do, and we're all civilized just the same. <laughs> he had a chip on his shoulder, and he saw this American, and he thought, I thought less of him because he ate with his fingers, the way God designed these things to be used, you see. And I thought, well, he's got a good point. I probably did think less of him because he was less civilized to eat that way. I decided for the rest of that trip, where appropriate, I would eat with my fingers. All across South Asia, I would go into fancy restaurants filled with professional well-dressed people where there were no spoons and forks, where there was a ceremonial sink in the middle of the room where people would wash their hands and eat with their fingers. It became quite natural. In fact, I had to be retrained when I got home. (laughs) But that changed my outlook, and that was a very powerful, valuable lesson. There are struggles on this planet that we cannot fathom. We've got our struggles, And I've been thinking a lot about baggage. You know, we've got baggage, don't we? Older people have depression baggage, World War II baggage, Nazi baggage, Japanese baggage, Communist baggage, Vietnam baggage, 9-11 baggage. Other people have baggage too, and it shapes their whole approach to stuff. And if we can leave our baggage and empathize with other people's baggage, we'll all have more happy baggage in the future, I would would imagine. I remember I was in, (laughs) I was, uh, I get a lot of good anecdotes from Turkey, I just love traveling in Turkey. I was uh, going through Turkey with another tour once, and it's sort of a cultural scavenger hunt. you don't have that many famous things to have to see on a list. When you see something, you stop the bus, get out, and check it out. We saw a stadium filled with high school students, we stopped the bus, went in. All these kids were thrusting their fist up in the air and chanting in unison, singing in unison, we are a secular nation, we are a secular nation. I asked my guide, what's going on? Don't they like God? And uh, she said, no, here in Turkey we love God, but we're very concerned, given the rising tide of Islamic fundamentalism just over our border in Iran, we're very concerned with the fragile and precious separation of mosque and state here in our community. And our George Washington Ataturk wrote that into the Constitution in the 1920s, that we will have separation of mosque and state. In fact, the military of Turkey is called upon constitutionally to overthrow its own government if it ever violates that separation of mosque and state. Wow, I didn't know it was a challenge, I didn't know it was a precious uh, concern, and now I saw young people underlining their commitment to that secularism, which is so important across the planet in these heated days. (laughs) Every year... 8 or or 10 substantial, uh, you know, languages die out. Nobody recognizes it hardly or notices it, but that last person who speaks that language dies, and one little bit less ethnic diversity on this planet. It's interesting to me that when you travel, you realize there are Nathan Hales, Patrick Henrys, and Nathan Allens all over the place. I was raised thinking ours were the ultimate, I was raised thinking ours were the only, and then you travel, you realize they're actually a dime a dozen, not to diminish ours, but they are Other countries have them also. In our travels, it's really exciting to empathize with a contemporary Nathan Hale, people that wish they only had more than one life to give for their people, you see. A very easy one to uh, get your brain around is Archbishop Oscar Romero. We'll go down to Central America, boy oh boy, you gain an appreciation for a people's struggle. I've been very fortunate to be able to go on tours with uh, Center for Global Education, which is run right here out of Twin Cities from Augsburg College. They are my mentor when it comes to this sort of thing. Augsburg College Center for Global Education, and I've been down to Central America a number of times to learn about this, what it's like to be on the receiving end of globalization and what are the real people's struggles, you know I missed the French Revolution, I didn't want to miss uh, theirs, and uh, it's a a very passionate and and heartbreaking and and beautiful situation when you can go down there and, and empathize with the people of Central America. I remember one day, I was, uh, one season, I was planning to go to Mazatlan, and I was in need of a vacation. I was ready for a, a pristine stretch of tropical beach, swept free of local riffraff. Uh, I was going to have a, paper, uh, a little uh, plastic strap on my wrist so I could just get margaritas whenever I wanted without <laughs> even paying for them. And then somebody invited me to go to El Salvador because it was the 25th anniversary of the assassination of Archduke Archbishop Oscar Romero. Uh, I told my family, I'm going to be no fun in the beach. I got to go to El Salvador. And, you know, two days into that trip I was covered with bug bites, sharing a sweaty dorm bed and a bunk bed full of travelers, and eating rice and beans one day and beans and rice the next. (laughs) But I was marching with the people of El Salvador. I was learning what it's like to lose your civil war. I was learning what it's like to have a charismatic Christian leader who said, I'll be killed, but I'll rise again in my people." Certainly enough, he was killed, and he rose in his people. And I saw the uh, Archbishop Romero in his people 25 years after his death. We came to a monument in downtown San Salvador, the capital. It looks exactly like the Vietnam Memorial. It's a perfect knockoff of our beautiful black granite memorial with just as many names chipped into it. 50,000 names in that memorial. Each one of those names, a Salvadoran who died fighting you and me. Now maybe they were communists, and we had to kill them you know, I don't know, I don't even want to get into that, it's just there is a reality there. That little country of four or five million people lost as many people as we lost in Vietnam fighting for land rights for poor people. That's baggage, that is baggage, you see. And to go there and to humanize that situation and understand them, that's powerful travel, and anybody can do it, it's not expensive, it's not risky, it's not dangerous, you just can go there and have that rich experience, or you can go to Mazatlan. I love Mazatlan, but you can balance your travels by having some other experiences. Recently I went to Iran, people said, why would you go to Iran? And I thought about it for a while, and I thought, well, it's just good character to know people before you bomb them. (laughs) So thanks to public broadcasting, thanks to outfits like Minnesota Public Radio and Twin Cities Public Television, I was able to go there, learn, and bring it back. No corporation would touch it with a ten-foot pole, but I really felt that our country knew only about Iran from what we learned from Ted Koppel, and it was time that we learned a little bit more. I just wanted to humanize that place. It was scary, I almost left my big camera in Athens, came in with a little sneak camera, because I thought people would be throwing stones at us when they figured out we were Americans on the streets of Tehran. I've never received such a warm and friendly welcome as when I was on the streets of Tehran. It blew me away. It's a big city, 12 million people, I was stuck in a traffic jam. Never forgetting the traffic jam, suddenly the guy in the next car asked my driver to roll down the window, he handed over a bouquet of flowers, and he said, give this to the foreigner in your back seat and apologize for our traffic. I don't know about Twin Cities, but that doesn't happen in Seattle, where I live. (laughs) Now, you know, uh, we were later on in another traffic jam. It was just quiet, and suddenly my driver just burst out. Death to traffic. I thought, wait a minute, I thought it was death to America or death to Israel. And he said, no, right now it's death to traffic. I said, what's with that? He said, here in Iran, when something's frustrating us and it's out of our control, we say death to that. I thought, well, he speaks Farsi, not English, he speaks very broken English, and he's translating for me. What does death to really mean? It's damn. And I thought, have I ever thought damn something? Have I ever thought, damn those teenagers? (laughs) Truth is, yes, I have. (laughs) Do I really want them to die and burn in hell for an eternity? No, No, not yet, But, uh, (laughs) but it's after midnight. Turn the music down. Damn those teenagers. Death to traffic, death to election fraud, death to America, damn America, you know, what is their baggage? Later on I went to a martyr cemetery, every town in Iran's got a martyr cemetery because they lost 200,000 people just a couple, a couple decades ago when they were invaded by a guy named Saddam Hussein who was funded by the United States. They grew up under the Shah of Iran, the Shah, our guy. I could tell you the whole story about that, just just watch my Iran show if you haven't seen it, you can see it on on Hulu if you want to any time. But when the Shah was on the throne, they bragged the miniskirts are shorter in Tehran than they are in Paris. Maybe that's cool if you like miniskirts, but if you are Ahmadinejad's core political base, that's disgusting, that's a threat, that's Western values coming in and hijacking our children. Uh, later on in that trip, I was on the streets, just doing my work as a TV producer, a, w- a woman came across the street, and said, are you an American journalist? I said, yes. She hit me with her finger on the chest like this, and she says, I want you to go home and tell the truth. We're strong, we're united, and we just don't want our little girls to be raised like Britney Spears. <laughs> That's what's on their mind. They're f- scared to death that if we do a regime change on them, their little girls will become boy toys, drug addicts, and crass materialists. Now, of course, she's a victim of some propaganda and so on, but you got to understand their perspective, you got to understand their baggage, you got to understand that the people who put a guy like their president in power are the less educated, small-town, fundamentalist people who, just like their counterparts here, are good people, motivated by fear and love. There's a lot of fear, there's a lot of love, and there's a lot of history of Western encroachment for these people. It's complicated, it's not a bumper sticker, and when we travel, we get an empathy for that. When we travel, we're able to compare notes on how governments do things. That's why I love going to Europe. In the United States, man, we are really into legislating morality. And you go to Europe and you realize that people really believe that a government has to make a choice, tolerate alternative lifestyles or build more prisons. And then they always tell me, you Americans lock up eight times as many people per capita as we Europeans do. Either you are inherently more criminal, or there's something screwy about your laws. (laughs) And it really hits home. It really hits home. Prostitution, nobody would think prostitution's a good thing, but it's going to happen. You can make it a capital offense, you can criminalize it, or you can deal with it in a pragmatic harm reduction kind of way, taking the crime out of the equation, trying to lessen the harm that horrible thing inflicts on our society. In Europe, a prostitute is unionized, she's legal, she is a business person, in order to keep her license she has to go to a doctor to get a certificate that she's not passing diseases around, and when she gets a dangerous client and she hits her emergency button, a pimp doesn't come to her rescue but a policeman does. Now that's not always going to work as well as they'd like it to work, but at least they're trying to do something that is not moralistic, but pragmatic in harm reduction. Drug policy is the same way. United States lost 18,000 people to heroin overdoses last year, Europe lost 8,000. We both have a terrible problem with hard drug abuse. In Europe they deal with it as a pragmatic harm reduction kind of way. I was just at a coffee shop in Switzerland, went downstairs to go to the toilet, blue lights. What's going on? I couldn't see my veins, couldn't shoot up if I wanted to. Any kind of poor neighborhood difficult neighborhood toilet in parts of Europe has blue lights, so junkies can't go there for a warm, dry place to shoot up. Now across the street, bolted to the bridge was a machine that used to sell cigarettes, now it's been retooled and it sells government-subsidized syringes, they're almost free, nobody passes needles over there. Government's not condoning needle use, it's just saying "Don't, don't share needles, here's some needles. And then down the street is a heroin maintenance clinic. Where people get counseling, and they don't have to buy their drugs from criminals in the streets who might not cut it, and then they'll die with an overdose. It's a powerful, powerful problem that both societies are struggling with to overcome. Marijuana is another issue. In the United States we have 80,000 people in jail today because of marijuana. We arrested more people last year than ever before for possession of marijuana, 800,000 people. Not rich white guys like me, poor people and black people people who can't afford to have a criminal record. This is an amazing problem in our society, and too many people just can't get by the basic soft on drugs, hard on drugs kind of thing. It's not soft or hard on drugs, it's smart on drugs. Take the crime out of the equation, treat it as a health problem, and an education challenge. Fascinating thing to me, I've been in this for 10 years, I'm a board member of Normal. I'm co-sponsoring an initiative in Washington State to legalize marijuana, not because I'm pro-drugs at all, I just think this is a very difficult issue, it's, a, it's, a, it's the prohibition of our age. And I know that if you take the crime out of the equation, and you regulate it, and you tax it, <laughs> use will not go up. It's been, thank you, it's been 25 years since the arrested of pot smoker in the Netherlands. It's about as, a joint's about as exciting as a can of beer. And the Dutch know that use does not go up. As a matter of fact, by every measure, our governments and their governments, Dutch people smoke half the marijuana per capita that Americans do. Americans think there's a whole reservoir of people that would love to ruin their lives smoking pot if only it was legal. I got news for you, people who want to smoke pot do, it's just poor people and black people get arrested. The, the Portuguese have, the Portuguese have, the Portuguese have uh, uh, legalized consumption of all drugs, Ten years now, they just had an assessment of the law, and it's, it's, it's hard, concerned people, not drug a- advocates, it's, it's law and order people that put this law into fact, out of a desperate way to get somewhere in the, in the fight on drugs. And what they found is, use does not go up. Crime's out, violence is out, money's out, they treat it as a health problem and an educational challenge. A lot of people, Americans, think marijuana is a gateway drug. Well Europeans Europeans have found the only thing gateway about marijuana is its illegality, because then the only place to get it is from a criminal on the street who's got a vested interest in getting you hooked on something more addictive and more profitable. These are complicated issues that deserve more than a bumper sticker, and in our society we've got an environment where people can't even talk about it without getting their character assassinated, and we're going nowhere. So, uh, you know, in my little beat as a travel writer, I focus on Europe, and it's such an interesting opportunity to compare Europe and the United States, and how do we're both rich, affluent, Christian, capitalistic societies, enthusiastic about government by foreign of the people. In Europe, I think, in the United States, it's government by foreign of the people via the corporations we own. <laughs> now, that's not... A, I'm not being a judgmental uh, statement there. I'm just saying, in our society... well, I am, but I'm, let's pretend I'm not. Um, <laughs> In our society, we have decided that it makes sense to have a government that creates a good business environment so we can, so our businesses can prosper. I run a business, I employ 80 people, I make plenty of money, and I'll tell you, I would not want to run my business in Europe. I'm glad I'm running it here in the United States. On the other hand, in Europe, their government is by, for, and of the people in spite of the interests of the corporations. The government is thinking about sustainability, about the environment, about poor people, about the future, you see and they think in the long term that's better for business anyways. So these are interesting and challenging things. When we travel, we can see our country from a distance, and I think that is an exciting opportunity. I'm going to wrap it up in two minutes, sorry. (laughs) 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 Uh, And when we get from a distance, and we look back at our our country, and then we see the reality of other people outside of our country, we realize, man, there's a huge gap between rich and poor in this world, both in our country and between us and the developed world, and and, and the developing world, and I've learned that even if you're motivated only by greed, if you know what's good for you, you don't want to be filthy rich in a desperately poor world. It's an ugly picture. You extrapolate where we're going in our country by going down to Central America, and you see what it's like to live behind designer fortifications. In most of Central America, every middle-class neighborhood pools its money to hire an armed guard in the street. That's not where you want to live, even if you're lucky to be behind the fortifications. And if you just come back to the United States, you understand here, in our society, hottest things in real estate might be prisons and gated communities. It's not a healthy sort of setup. We've got an opportunity in our travels to learn more about where our country may be headed, and we can come home and share the notes that we pick up from this. When we travel, we realize that we are confronted by unprecedented challenges here in the United States. People look at us from afar and they see an empire, Not that we are an empire, the other 96% of humanity looks at us and sees an empire. We're the country outvoted in the United Nations routinely, 140 to 4 on issues that matter to the desperate half of humanity trying to live on two dollars a day. Child labor, landmines, third world debt, water issues, 140 to 4. Who stands with us? Israel, Marshall Islands, and Micronesia. It's not a pretty picture. United States, 4% of this planet spends as much as everybody else put together on military, and you can't even get elected these days without promising more for military. That's an interesting imbalance that other people can see where we might not. We Americans are challenged by unprecedented challenges these days, and how we deal with them is shaped by our worldview, and our worldview is shaped by our world experience. Everybody in this room cares, That's why you're here, I would assume. Everybody in this room has a different worldview shaped by your life story. If you lost somebody to a drunk driver, you got a different worldview. If you watch a certain TV channel, you've got a different worldview than somebody who watches a different TV channel. If you care about support our troops, or your investments, or education, or accessible housing, or whatever good, interesting, worthwhile cause you might embrace, you have a different worldview shaped by your life experience. My worldview is shaped by travel, and I'm thankful for that. The value of travel is nothing new. 1400 years ago, Muhammad said, don't tell me how educated you are, tell me how much you've traveled. Thomas Jefferson traveled, and he said, travel makes a person wiser, if less happy. (laughs) Mark Twain traveled, and he famously wrote, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and (laughs) narrow-mindedness. And I've traveled enough to know that it is an exciting opportunity when we travel to be able to broaden our perspective and come home and share that. I'll just close with an image that I like to take my groups to. I was in Turkey once again, and I wanted my groups to get to know a dervish. You know the whirling dervishes? Those guys that get all dizzy and then they uh, pray or something. Uh, I wanted to let my groups see this, and not in a tour, in a cruise ship kind of entertainment form, but actually to understand it. So I met a dervish. I talked him into letting us watch him while he prays. He said, I'm not a photo op. You can watch me, but you wanna, I want you to know what I'm doing." He said, I'm a follower of Mevlana. I'm just paraphrasing loosely, kind of a follower of, of Mevlana, like he's sort of the St. Francis of the Muslim faith, a prophet of love. And five times a day I, I get into a meditative trance by whirling, and I pray. He plants one foot in his home community, his family, his hometown, the other foot goes around acknowledging the beautiful variety in God's great creation. One hand goes up to accept the love of his Creator, The other hand goes down and like the spout of a tea kettle showers it on God's creation, and that beautiful monk becomes a conduit between God's love and His creation and all of us here. Five times a day he gets into that trance, and he thinks about God's love and how he can shower that on creation. Looking at that man as his head tilted over and his robe billowed out, and seeing the look on my tourists' faces when they saw him, I thought, we're going to go home, we're going to be changed. We're going to know that that guy who seems so different is actually fundamentally the same, and we can employ that, here in our lives, as citizens of this great and powerful nation, and we can really, really find that a broader perspective is the most beautiful souvenir. It's a thrill to be able to share these ideas with you, thank you very much. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Rick Steves. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Learn more about the forum online at WestminsterForum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is travel expert Rick Steves. We'll be taking questions from our speaker for our speaker from the radio audience through Twitter and Facebook. Our Twitter handle is WestminsterTHF, and you can find us on Facebook at Westminster Town Hall Forum. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I wanna thank the co-sponsor of today's program, Minnesota Food Share, which is launching its annual March campaign to raise more than half the food that will be distributed by Minnesota food shelves this year. We invite you to join us here at Westminster for our next forum on Thursday, March 8, at noon, when writer and researcher Rachel Simmons will explore the hidden costs of adolescent bullying. And now, Mr. Steves, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question concerns the changes you have seen in the view of Americans, so all these decades of traveling you've done, has the view of Americans changed? Uh,
1: The view of Americans, I'm assuming uh, the view of other people at Americans, we have this ugly American situation, and um, people are worried about being not received very warmly, but I've always felt that people enjoy us as individuals, people love the ideals of America, the ideals of America are bigger than even our own great country. But oftentimes they don't like our trade policy or our perceived militarism. If they're angry at America, they're not angry at you. I've traveled in places you'd think I'd be blanketed in Canadian flags, and I've never thought that was necessary. People like me as American, as long as I'm worth liking.
0: Does the relative wealth of travelers vis-a-vis locals create negative feelings in the locals, particularly those with, with whom the traveler has little or only passing contact?
1: That's a very good question. Uh, We travel to the developed world and we're as wealthy as the next person. We go to the developing world and everybody knows on the streets that your camera is worth what their dad makes in a whole year. It doesn't take a lot of propaganda to get some street kid comfortable ripping off your camera if he knows that you're that rich and it's just a bad day for you, you have to buy a new camera. That's one year's income. I just think it's very exciting to travel and put myself in a situation where I have to deal with that awkwardness. You know, my trip cost three years' wages, and I'm taking pictures of these cute kids at the well. From a Christian, what is the stewardship issue there? I struggle with that long and hard, and I've decided that it is good stewardship to spend my time and money going to the developing world as long as I come home and share what I learned from that. I've found that, you know, my daughter has $5,000 for straight teeth and money left over for whitener. And I noticed every kid in her class has enough money in their family to scrape together the funds necessary for braces. Well, that's great. We work hard. we got a winning system. Our kids get straight teeth. But when you travel, you find girls just as precious as our little girls in a little community in some dusty corner of the world that doesn't have running water. Their mothers have to abandon these kids and walk literally hours a day to bring home water for their kids. And then it occurs to me for the cost of two sets of braces, you could drill a well in that community. And then those moms, all the moms in that thirsty village could walk across the street instead of across the county for water every morning and pump fresh, safe drinking water for their kids. And every time they pumped that well, they'd think, God bless America. Now, if we spent $10,000 to drill a well in a thirsty community, to me, even if all you're concerned about is national security, that's exercising soft power, and that makes us a treasure on this planet. And if we're wondering how to best put ourselves in a secure place on this planet, we could drill a few more uh, wells and, and drop a few less bombs, I would say.
0: A question from a Southwest high school student. How can you say you understand these countries' points of view when you don't speak their language and you're followed around by a camera team?
1: I know, it's pathetic, yeah. I don't speak the languages, and it's been a real uh, challenge for me to really understand the the cultures I'm going to. I do think, though, that uh, it's kind of my shtick. I I teach people how to travel in Europe. A lot of them are nervous about going there. If I spoke all the languages and said it's easy, it would ring hollow. I honestly speak only English. I'm pretty good with, you know, charades and speaking what the Voice of America calls simple English. Uh, I could tell you a whole lecture on that in another talk. But um, I I would say that we speak the world's linguistic common denominator. And, uh, you know, if a Greek meets a Norwegian hiking in the Alps, they're going to communicate speaking broken English. Um, I don't learn a lot with a big camera around me, that's very true, but that's a very small part of the time I'm traveling. Generally, I'm traveling alone, immersed in those cultures, making all sorts of mistakes. When I get ripped off, I celebrate because they don't know who they just ripped off. I'm gonna learn that scam, come home and share with my travelers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Another question from a student. What are some of the specific tactics you have used to adapt to different cultures as you travel?
1: specific tactics to adapt to different cultures is don't be judgmental, don't compare it to back home. It's easy to think Hindus are terrible parents for feeding their cows better than their children, but I realized when I went there that I cannot judge 800 million Hindus for feeding their cows better than their children because I don't know that culture, I don't understand their fundamental uh, points of life. I mean when you go to India, it it really, that's why India is my favorite country, it it humbles your self-assuredness it wallops your ethnocentricity. I thought I knew what music was until I went to India, and then I realized there's a sophisticated whole, you know, kind of music that doesn't even have meter or mode, and it's just as sophisticated and beautiful as ours if we understand it. And maybe that if you live in a country with no trees and you have to have cow pies for fuel, it's important to integrate into your values and religion the uh, idea of taking good care of your cows so you can, you know, have that fuel. I don't know, but I just, when I travel, I don't want to judge countries I want to try to learn from them. I want to be a temporary European. I try to be a chameleon. I don't drink tea unless I'm in England. then after a long day of sight, seeing a good spot of tea really is kind of nice, you see.
0: (laughs) Another question from a student. How would you suggest people of a lower income, like college students, travel to the spectacular places you describe?
1: Well, it is expensive to travel. And that's something I'm very passionate about in my work, is trying to keep travel accessible. On my TV show for 20 years, we've been bringing a new series every two years to uh, TPT here in the Twin Cities area, and uh, I've never filmed anything that any viewer couldn't do on their own. If the tourist board tries to open a door for me that only film crews can go, I don't want to film that, because we want to enable people to, we want to inspire people to really have these experiences. If you don't have a lot of money, um, you know, there, there are ways to travel cheaply, and I find in so many ways, the less you spend, the more you experience. But even the best budget traveler in Europe is going to spend a lot of money. But it's quite easy to go south of our border here and have an incredible time. I, I just spent Christmas and New Year's down in uh, El Salvador, uh, Nicaragua, and Mexico City, and had a rich experience. And, and uh, you know, it's you can learn a lot just by going south of our border if you're really on a, on a tight budget.
0: Here's a question that was tweeted in. What are some of the things that Americans take for granted that you've learned about as you've gone overseas?
1: What are things that Americans take for granted that I've learned overseas? Uh, stability, Uh, a government that changes uh, whether your your party wins or not, you you know, you change without a a civil war and that sort of thing, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, The ability to I guess that's the main thing, is, is uh, Americans take for granted the stability that we have. And a lot of times we discount st- the value of stability in the developing world. You, you know, you can have ideals, but you also got to remember stability is something that, that undergirds progress. So it's a, an interesting balancing act to take care of stability as well as your ideals. Um, I guess that's my answer to that.
0: A lot of us will be going to college shortly, where we may get the opportunity to study abroad. What suggestions do you have to make a college study abroad program effective political travel?
1: Well, I wrote a book called Travel as a Political Act. And I wrote that to try to uh, equip Teachers who uh, work and study abroad, and, and so on, to have some uh, share the lessons I've learned from my travels, so I could give a plug for my travel as a political act book. A lot of teachers do use that. I work with the uh, NAfSA, the National Association for Foreign Study Advisors, and uh, I'm a big proponent of the value of, of foreign study. Uh, and I, I would say, if there's any way you can have as part of your university experience some study abroad, uh, it's a beautiful thing. If you can't do that just to take your summers to travel is, is, is just life-changing. I, I, the most powerful trip I ever had was the time I flew to Europe on the day after I graduated from high school. It was the Europe through the gutter trip, and it really was the most beautiful experience.
0: Final question, our time is nearly up. Are you hopeful about the world and the relationships among nations given all the travel you've done?
1: Am I hopeful about the world and the relationships between nations? I have to say, the United States is such a powerful, powerful force on this planet. And I'm very discouraged about who controls the media and, and the, the, the forces that shape our perspective. As long as Americans do not travel, I think we're at a bigger disadvantage than if we did travel. If, every, if the world wanted to get together and make the very best investment the world could do. They would create a fund to give every American, after they finished their schooling, a six-month trip around the world, just to go anywhere they wanted. (laughs) Ironically, ironically, we got the money within our own society to do that, but if the the world wanted to make this world a better place, they'd find a way to get Americans traveling. Obviously, that's not going to happen, but I think each of us, in our own ways, can, can help our friends and neighbors be honest about the other 96% of humanity and to realize that this world's a small place, it's a complicated place, and uh, we're a beautiful country, but when you get out there and travel a little bit, you realize that the variety on this planet is something to celebrate rather than to be uh, threatened by.
0: Thank you, Rick Steves.
1: Thank you very much.